Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to Dose of Ether episode 4. Today we're going to talk about a new model for VC called Mining 2.0 or Generalized Mining. Cloudflare now integrates with IPFS and institutionalization as the fourth era of crypto. And last but not least, Gemini is launching a stablecoin on Ethereum. We'll talk about that and more on your Dose of Ether. Hey Lucian, what's up? Hey Bijan, nice to be talking with you again. Uh, always fun. You know, I think I was kind of worried about this episode because I was reading what was going on and it was a lot of technical stuff. And I was like, how, how are we going to talk about this? It was like, you know, nitty gritty details about updates. And then we started having a conversation earlier and man, we, we figured out a, a hot set of topics to talk about. Let's just jump right into it. Um, a new model for VC. This is a, a really fascinating concept. We're talking about how venture capital funds in crypto they are investing obviously heavily in the protocol layer, right? They're, they're not really investing in consumer apps, they're investing in protocols. And many of them are taking the traditional venture capital approach. They're saying, okay, we're hands off, we're gonna give you some money, you're gonna give us a future promise of tokens in the form of the SAFT agreement, and go build your company, we'll sell our tokens in three to five years. Um, the, the, the other approach that VC traditionally takes is a hands-on approach, so you have uh, venture capital firms that will coach their founders, will give them training, will do customer development with them, will kind of guide them through and, and be super involved in networking. Um, and they're trying to grow the value of their investment, right? If they invest $100,000 at an angel round, maybe they want to make sure that these founders are on point, that they're actually doing the things that they need to get product market fit, right? Um, in the crypto world, things are ha have taken much of a similar um, uh, direction until more recently. You have um, uh, companies that are now thinking, hey, if we, if we don't participate in the communities as stakers, miners, contributors uh, to the open source projects, and so on and so forth, then maybe our investment will actually dilute over time. Um, because, for instance, I'm I'm uh, an investor. I was an investor in the Tezos uh, Tezos ICO, and when their beta net launched, I thought, "Wow, I have to get on. I have to start a mining node because if I don't, uh, I'm going to be left holding the bag. the The token's going to inflate, and those inflation rewards are going to go to the people who are uh, baking uh, on the on Tezos blockchain." And so as soon as I could, I started building a, a mining rig and, or a, a baking rig and figuring all this stuff out. Um, and, and I know now that VCs are doing the same thing. They're saying, we are not only investing in you as a company, we're going to um, use our tokens, we're going to run our own operations, maybe in their own offices, uh, to do monitoring, to do mining, to support as nodes on the networks. Um, to make sure that their investment is, you know, has a high ROI into the future. Yeah, this is not what was traditionally known as active investing. Um, this is more of a participatory version of investing. And 
actually looking at crypto through a pure investment standpoint is very confusing because they're neither securities, they're neither debt, they're neither uh, commodities, they're a new type of assets. And um, just because some project calls itself a utility token doesn't actually mean that it has a utility token. So I feel that the best way to properly assess um, the usability and the functionality and the long-term value of these networks is to actually go ahead and use it. Yeah, exactly. It's part of your diligence, actually. I think like there was a great set of slides, which we'll link uh, in the description, but uh, about how not to be a shitcoin. And a lot of it was, you know, look to make sure that they have real code, that they have functioning um, uh, systems with communities that are actively involved and not just shilling their coin and, and trying to get, you know, airdrops and shit. Um, and, and I think as a VC, especially in the space where you're, you know, all the criminals are out to try and get their hands on some ICO money. Um, you got to be really, you have to be really careful. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised you didn't mention the uh, other type of new VC. And this isn't actually new. This was uh, called boiler room scams in the 1980s. And uh, they're more commonly referred to as pump and dump schemes now. So essentially, the thought process was, if um, a specific investor is capable of providing quote unquote marketing services uh, for a token um, at a discount, what they would do is they would essentially uh, use their uh, hard, cold hard cash to um, increase the presence, the value, the market reach, um, the views, the attention that is drawn by this token um, and sell promises. And uh, this, if it was a security, would be illegal. There are laws against the promotion and advertisement of IPOs for this exact reason. Um, there's actually a pretty good movie called Boiler Room, if you actually want to check it out. Um, it's just that they had phones then, and they would call people on their home lines, and, right. and they would have case, to convince them. Right, and in this case, what's happening is you have an entire methodology for scamming retail investors out of their money. If you look at the vast majority of these ICOs in 2016-17, their token values have collapsed, utterly collapsed. And why? It's They have these huge ramp-ups from their ICO and their token distribution event because they have a, a, an army of shills. And then you have these uh, super early investors who are holding on to the vast majority of supply of tokens. And then they just flood the market with them at the height of the hype and the token value crashes, they get out with their money and the, the, um, it never recovers. Uh, and this is the fate of the vast majority of tokens out there. And which is, and it's part of the reason why Bitcoin maximalists are so confident in their, in their vision, right? It's that these, these tokens have no way of, um, of keeping their value, let alone creating new value. Uh, and that's just been the case with so many of these scam coins. The really strange thing about um, Bitcoin maximalists in this situation is that um, traditionally adoption would, would be seen as a good thing. Um, the introduction of new people to new technology um, would eventually increase the value of the original token. Um, they definitely don't see it that way. 
And it's possibly because of the type of sales pitch, the type of um, marketing that has went in to draw in um, investors into some of these like possibly less fundamentally sound tokens. And, um, but what I am seeing is that, you know, 2018, the, the bear market is actually making it a lot harder to, um, to get the same valuations, to get the same kind of funding. Now, it's still frothy as all hell. There's hundreds of venture capital firms that are in this um, space and trying to make a splash. Uh, a lot of people that are still not really informed on uh, the reality of, of uh, how, these net, how long these take, networks take to build. In particular, retail investors who are expecting a 10x return. And then like for Raiden, for example, that had a 10x return one month after its token launched. It, it just hmm. appreciated so much. And Raiden isn't even a year, still a year later, they're probably a year away from a production you know, system that, that will actually be have a substantial amount of users um, to justify an increase in token price. Since then, the, the value has dropped considerably, but the point, this, is, this is like very typical of, of uh, ICOs in the space. And so if you're building a company, not only are you going to have to convince investors that to contribute as community members, um, you're also going to have to justify that your token is valuable and will, continue, will accrete value over time. Uh, and that is becoming harder and harder to prove, especially with the narrative shifting um, so far in the field of Bitcoin uh, to the point where people think almost nothing is valuable outside of Bitcoin. Right. It's uh, <laughs> technology Luddites. But um, in, in, an, in a certain sense, if they are only trying to do one thing with this specific technology and it covers all of their needs, then they're good, right? But um, as... Uh, a technologist and trying to build things, I need more, <laughs> right? Yeah. And even Ethereum, which is uh, multifaceted, can't do it all. Um, for example, IPFS is the uh, default choice for most developers to store data off-chain and have a, um, a hash address that actually points back to the data and its contents. And you can't do that on Ethereum <laughs> yet. They're trying to build something. It's called Swarm, but it's not ready yet. IPFS is ready. And um, essentially, it's interesting seeing um, a pushback even when a good indicator like institutional adoption of technology that's a key component of the Ethereum uh, development ecosystem, um, you see people who are... Uh, on the core Ethereum development community actually having a negative reaction. So the story that I'm talking about is Cloudflare now integrates with IPFS and is actually hosting a gateway. So the same way that you could use Cloudflare's um, DNS services, their DDoS mitigation services, you could actually access their IPFS node and use it as a gateway so um, you could actually point your uh, cloud storage to their IPFS node. And the this, this uh, lead a, developer... This, this is a crazy development. Like, just let's pause here for a yeah. moment because uh, IPFS, the leading you know, distributed 
storage solution uh, is now getting some substantial validation by being included in Cloudflare's suite of tools, right? Because this company is supporting the vast majority of uh, webs or many of the websites out there for DDoS protection and other cloud services. And by by putting their brand behind IPFS and saying, we're going to bet on the future that IPFS is going to be a part of it and that we want to be at the forefront of that, even if it um, challenges some of our existing businesses. That is a huge step for IPFS and the whole blockchain, I think, in crypto community. Um, but as you're saying, it sounds like not everyone is super happy about this. Yeah, um, so I'm probably butchering his name, but the lead developer of Geth, Peter... So I can't pronounce the last Z name, damn Z it. Zalagi. <laughs> uh, uh, I think Zalagi. Zalagi. Damn, I should probably have looked into that before trying to say it. <laughs> I probably would have messed up anyways. So Peter, yeah. The, the better to know him as uh, the lead implementer of the Go implementation of Ethereum. Yeah. Um, he wrote a tweet, and I'll read it verbatim, that says... So you took a decentralized project and re-centralized it. You took untrusted hash addressed content and hid it behind a trusted operator that can man in the middle attack it. And this is good. How exactly? Question mark. Mic drop. It's yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's interesting because I feel the kind of antagonism because an establishment player is stepping into his game, <laughs> mm. right? It's yeah. it's as if it's as if like Microsoft decide, decides to um, have an alternative Unix implementation to compete with Mac OS. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like it's not exactly like that, but yeah, it, I mean, it's but some it's, kind it's of a surprising. It's kind of a surprising thing uh, to see, especially at this point in a in a very low point in. Um, the narrative for crypto but to see this division it's signaling you know hey if you're coming on board to to our kind of you know cyber cyberpunk revolution um cypherpunk revolution that you you know you need to be on board with decentralization and by cloudflare getting in here and trying to look you know maybe maybe peter sees it as a, a marketing ploy right uh, they're trying to, to capture interest, but in reality, they're actually undermining the very thing that you would use IPFS for, which is to, to know that your, um, uh, your stored file is going to be there no matter what happens, and then you can access it safely and trustlessly. Um, by using Cloudflare, you're, you're just trusting Cloudflare. And it's a compelling argument. What, do, what are your thoughts on it? So the technical details of his argument, having read a bunch of his comments, are essentially that um, there's no local validation of the authenticity and accuracy of the data. And that's his main, uh, main crux of the argument. He's arguing that you need a browser extension to keep it decentralized. You have global consensus, but you need local validation. And if you're being served content from a centralized server, it's besides the point of everything that we're building, right? 
And the counter argument is actually not technology based at all. It's just the knee jerk reaction of like, oh man, we're entering the major leagues now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So, like, right. a lot of the developers that were on the feed are basically saying that they're one step closer to like the world revolution that they want. Um, it's just that in tech, you can still bring technological change and lose control over how uh, and the direction of it, right? I, I think mean, the internet's I, the perfect yeah. example. I, I think it's true. It's true that that you know. I think he may be right to feel a little bit threatened by this because it would it might be easy for you know consumers to be confused and for a Cloudflare, uh, you know, intermediary to be a normal outcome for for crypto users which is not a good thing in the long term but if what is what what does he think can actually be done are you going to stop cloudflare from doing this i think from my perspective is don't suppress innovation because you think it's it might be going in a slightly different direction than your ideal make something better make something more compelling if it's browser extensions and local validation that is important then you have to convince users that it's also important, right? And um, you have to convince uh, users not to use services that are not uh, protecting their security. And if you can't do that, then then what argument do you really have? So I, I think it's great what Cloudflare is doing. I, I definitely think implement, you know decentralized apps that are thinking about using them should think twice um, because you may alienate your entire community, right? I mean, I think Peter is not um uh, uh, gonna be a a small voice for this kind of argument so you need to be cautious but if you're just using ipfs uh, as a layer a non-critical uh layer for logic in your app and you want ddos protection for the memes that you're showing people uh what, what's the problem with using that I, I think it's a good thing yep and i also feel that um maybe traditional players are actually branching into um, this more cypherpunk style uh, way of thinking, mainly because I'm sure their developers think that way anyways. <laughs> but usually it's hard for an organization to main maintain that kind of intellectual independence once it grows past a certain size. Um, but just today, Cloudflare uh, also introduced Onion Service. Right, so onion routing service, which again, depending on how it's implemented, could be really bad. <laughs> right, so I mean, again, right. like if you're using Tor, do you really want uh, a U.S. company, Cloudflare, to be able to see all your traffic? Right, so right, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> especially it's, as because you essentially, if you uh, are the last point or um, either on the receiving or the submitting end, um, the routing packets get decrypted. Right. So, <laughs> and, and you know what? So actually, if your last point is Cloudflare, might yeah. be besides the point, but they're thinking about it. So it depends on the actual implementation. So, yeah, so uh, Nick, yeah Nick, I'm also a bit torn. <laughs> when I, I think if we just step back for a moment and just look at the centralization, decentralization question and, and the hybrid model, which you're seeing a lot of um, decentralized apps deploying these hybrid models where they have, let's say, a bridge server that is functioning as a, a user experience layer that is familiar to users, um, but in the back end is doing some blockchain transaction, you know, smart contract work. Um, 
Nick Zabo, his perspective on this is like, if you're not decentralized from the start, like Bitcoin or Aragon, or sorry, um, Augur, um, or Aragon for that matter, but like, if you're not thinking about decentralization 100% from product launch, then you're never going to get there. And I think this is a pretty compelling argument um, that, that like, you know, if you take shortcuts to get user adoption in the short term and you have total governance over your token supply, the likelihood of you giving up that power at some later point in the development of your community is increasingly smaller as the value of the network grows and your power over it stays the same. Uh, and that being really, really high amount of power that these founders of token-based uh, businesses have over their networks with the future promise of giving up that governance to the community. How do we know that they're, they're actually going to do that? And I think Peter, you know, and, um, and his argument is kind of an extension of that logic of like, if you make it too easy for people to do things in a non-decentralized way, but have the, the, the guise of being decentralized, then you're doing a disservice to everyone. So I, I, it's hard to pick a side on this one. Yeah. And um, basically, Nick Salvo's short version is uh, trusted third parties or security holes. And um, in essence, I guess, a trusted third party that is located inside of the United States uh, follows and complies with the requests from United States uh, government offices. Right. And yeah, that's, that's definitely a... That's definitely something that consumers have to understand. And I but I mean, if self-hosting, yeah. yeah, if self-hosting is the only way to go, it's not going to work, right? Right. So the recommendation Peter was giving was create a browser app, right, an integration into the browser so that users can use it as easily as they use MetaMask. Right. Yeah, yeah. and and we'll see how see how things play out. Uh, I'm interested to carry on with this uh, yeah. and learn more about this argument, but. Um, yeah. You know, I think it leads into why we're so interested in Ethereum in a way is because it, it does have decentralization and security as two of its most important characters, characteristics, right? And you're seeing that in the um, what is a very security conscious group of people, that being institutional investors and uh, Wall Street and, and the entire financial uh, industry. We're thinking we're, we're talking about the, the fourth era of crypto that could be upon us right now. And this was an interesting take from a number of folks talking about crypto institutionalization as the next, um, you know, uh, match for the for the fire that is the next growth wave in uh, crypto. Uh, and this is a really interesting concept. And I think if financial institutions are building and we are seeing increasingly they're building on top of Ethereum, when they're building in, in crypto, um, that's a lot. That's a lot of value. That is like the, the majority of value in the world is in the financial institutions. And so, um, if the fourth era of crypto is crypto is is institutionalization, then that means that some of the the biggest um, changes are, are are still yet to be had. Yeah, so this article um, by Yaniv Feldman um, proposed a really interesting kind of way of um, framing the next potential wave of, would you call it adoption or would you call it like use case? Um, 
I mean, it's hard to say. It's adoption in some respects. So, like, I think the the highlight here is that they they're saying that um, crypto has gone through three major growth phases. Bitcoin being released as a, a new technology and innovation for payments and store of value decentralized way. Uh, the second wave being altcoins, businesses for the first time ever being able to copy or clone that that code of Bitcoin and mint their own currency. For the first time ever, you'd be able to mint uh, an, a, a currency that can't be counterfeited. That's an incredible thing that many businesses tried um, to, to build on, right? And then that didn't really take off. You had things like Feathercoin and, and others that just kind of disappeared. But the next era, which is the most recent one that most people are familiar with, is the utility token era. And that was driven by Ethereum, the ERC-20 standard. You talk about adoption. It was There was a ton of adoption from a development community um, all over the world brought into crypto because of this ERC-20 token. If that didn't exist, we wouldn't have the ICO craze that we have. I mean, just the ease with which um, crypto exchanges could integrate ERC-20 made it possible for these ICOs to inflate at such high rates and to get immediate liquidity and, and drive this froth that we saw in 2017. Yeah, I think um, I also saw an Eth Berlin statistic saying that there's about 300,000 uh, developers working on Ethereum full time. Wow. wow. And yeah, well, I mean, the funding went somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't know there were that many people. But then again, like you have, um, I think it was Zombie Chain or, or you know, the guys at Loom Network, they they have uh, mm -hmm. seen huge growth in their course for teaching people how to make smart contracts. And I mean, there's no right. doubt that the last era was about developer um, interest and developer adoption. And that is what the utility token era was, um, you know, represented by this new era, you know, these folks, One Alpha, are saying um, financial institutions in the West are what's going to drive the next phase of crypto, um, or financial institutions in general. We're seeing a lot of activity, obviously, in Asia, but this includes, you know, ETFs, um, decentralized asset registries, or, or, or DARS. These are for things like real estate, or, or um, and so on. You know, security tokens of, of that that represent stock and equity assets. Um, but also stable coins. This is another area, fiat peg stable coins. Um, they're going to bring, um, you know, fiat currencies into the crypto world. People are, are going to want pegged coins, you know, especially people in areas where um, their inflation is getting out of control because their governments, you know, are, are, are just totally irresponsible. Um, and so, this is the narrative is is the fourth era of crypto going to be institutionalization and financial instruments being brought into the the blockchain um era uh, uh, uh metaphor or is it going to be something else i do find it interesting because um the difference in the conversations that i've i've been hearing with um institutions within the crypto space between the between this time last year and now are radically different. And um, the normalization of crypto is definitely here to stay. Um, I've saw advertisements of blockchain in airports. Um, <laughs> and it's 
um, how they're actually going to impact the entire ecosystem is always up for debate because the weird thing about having institutions in crypto is will they use public networks mm -hmm. right like the challenge of creating private transactions and linking them into public networks is substantial um, I'm not saying it's impossible. With layer two, um, it's plausible, right? So if companies build products on top of layer two solutions like state channels, um, then they have privacy by default. But you do see who goes in, who goes out, so you don't have complete transparency. And the question is whether or not um, organizations are going to start adept, uh, adopting some of the new uh, methods for hiding in plain sight. In my personal opinion, um, I'm not really interested in designing private blockchain networks um, because it's kind of besides the point in my in my view. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you know it's a different. It, companies are going to take different approaches, right? We know, we know Google, Facebook, these guys have blockchain initiatives. We've learned this week about the, t the number of institutional investors or, or, or firms or institutions like Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. You know, these guys have big operations building, um, you know, uh, crypto tools for their customers, right? And it's hard to say where it's going to go, you know, it, it, but there, yeah. there are definitely going to be different strategies, right? One strategy is we're going to have a fully permission chain internally that we can verify ourselves and we're going to make sure everything is um, secure. And maybe for some use cases that works. Um, others are going to do, you know, a hybrid approach like VeChain where they're trying to add a, a ton of value. And, you know, maybe maybe it's not as decentralized as something like Ethereum and maybe it's um, you know, their, their, their consensus system isn't as, as uh, strong from a security standpoint, but by working with tons of different companies, they can bring together groups that are already not sharing information. If you, if you are able to collaborate with others in your industry in an area that you don't want to be competitive in, you just want to have, you know, an equal playing field in, you might be able to enhance all of your businesses by sharing some information over some blockchain, excuse me, over some blockchain um, without ever revealing maybe who you are, that you are Louis Vuitton versus Chanel, but you want to know, for example, you know, how to, you want to locate a, a manufacturer that is um, reproducing or, or faking your products, right? Maybe you could use a V chain or some other blockchain to help facilitate this kind of thing. Um, but you're adding some new features to these companies that they never had access to before. So perhaps the permissioning and the, you know, whether it's a private or public blockchain doesn't matter to these folks if they're getting some net value to their businesses. I feel that um, there are some blockchain horror stories. <laughs> um, my favorite thus far is uh, I'll post the article in the um, in the show notes afterwards because I don't have it up in front of me, so I can't quote the author. But um, they cite this IBM Hyperledger project that was uh, that received a ton of promotion um, along with Walmart. And what Walmart did was they resuscitated a program from I don't know 2007 2009. Um, for tracking and tracing the origin of food 
for Walmart, it makes a lot of sense because they want to have uh, all of the food properly uh, traced to its origin so that if there is a case of a contamination, they're able to appropriately remove only the contaminated food items. Um, but the reason the project failed was because it essentially made farm workers uh, take part in manual data entry, which obviously suppliers were never really like too keen on. But then IBM built a Hyperledger blockchain implementation. Walmart controls the whole supply chain anyways, right? And then they just made all of their suppliers upload data onto their private permission blockchain. Right, and that, and and that works. That's a great example because that works for Walmart because their suppliers implicitly trust them. But if you were building a, a new service yeah, and you didn't I mean, have a you brand, you could use something like Enigma or you know other, other like privacy-based smart contract protocols to keep certain information private while maintaining the security that you can rely on with a system like Ethereum, right? Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned Enigma because Enigma is uh, to provide privacy to public Ethereum smart contracts, right? So the idea is that like if it actually works in a uh, private setting as it should and there's no like overarching because Walmart could have just centralized everything in an SAP database just as easily, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you do design a system that works in a private uh, setting that's also adversarial, it's also going to work in a public setting. And why not opt for the security guarantees? Why not opt for the code as law properties of a public blockchain yeah. and the massive amount of security? Well, it's that, interesting. Um, I mean, you're, you're, that's, yeah. yeah, you're closer to this than I am. But like that, that was a very common story, you know, a year or two ago. Uh, are, is this still, you think, the the standard? I mean, it, it sound it seems to me like as the ecosystem develops and more tooling is you know evolves, that the natural preference will be to go onto systems like Ethereum that that have the highest security because you're going to get the deepest network effects. You're going to get the best tools, and so even yep. if Hyperledger is able to convince a few people to onboard now, I don't think that's sustainable, and I think that the market will prove out which business models are the most effective and useful for the community. Yeah, I'm willing to bet my career on it. I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to bet that Hyperledger was um, a nice experiment for its time um, based on the assumption that the development of uh, advances in public blockchain networks would be sufficiently slow uh, for there to need to be consortium uh, blockchains in the interim. Right. And um, I, I'm already seeing production level blockchain applications, not many. Um, it's still difficult to uh, do right. And um, I also think that there's just, uh, I mean, it, you can't even do value transfer using a uh, permission blockchain, right? right? right. Like, I mean, it's just, and, that, and that's why I think we're not, seeing i'm at least i'm not getting exposed to a lot of conversations about that because it's it's i think they've already lost actually <laughs> but we'll see we'll see i, I do too still, no well still, well i'm pretty i'm pretty like up to date and they are currently the market leading consulting uh firm for providing um blockchain related consulting right 
Um, so they do have the brand recognition and the association to being a first mover within the space. Um, but they also do have the problem of maintaining legacy and they seem to be the only ones actually participating in the development of, uh, of Hyperledger, right? So it's like they got a head start. It puts them very well positioned in the market. They do. I think I've uh, seen that they've had over 400 paid pilots of which only about 16 were consortium. Um, using data from some wow. public presentations that I've seen at conferences. Um, but in my opinion, in my opinion, that only means that they implemented only 16 useful projects. Because if you have a intra-company blockchain, there is no point, <laughs> right? Yeah, if, if you're not yeah. connected to them. Um, so yeah, I, I think that will, a lot remains to be seen there, but it's clear that there are a lot of different strategies here. You know, everybody and their mother has been talking about how Augur has a terrible user experience. And but you know what? It is fully decentralized. So I don't know. I think right. I think it remains to be seen. But the more and more projects that get onboarded to Ethereum, the more confidence that I have that it's here to stay. I mean, you look at Dai. Dai has has stayed stable as Ether has dropped from over twelve hundred dollars to under two hundred dollars, and it's becoming multi collateralized. This is Governance by Maker, uh, stable coin that is built, you know, built on top of Ethereum, and it's a, it's, it's it could be a super valuable thing into the future. Gemini uh, is now releasing an ERC twenty stable coin called GUSD. This is huge. How 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 can we not um, recognize that Ethereum is just you know so far ahead with with adoption? Yeah, and I also feel that um, they're basically creating a stablecoin similar to Tether, but it's actually in the U.S., <laughs> which means it has to follow regulation regarding reserves. And Yeah, what's cool yeah. about it actually is that customers are protected. So if you have a Gemini USD dollar, it's actually FDIC insured. That's an incredible advancement because... Now you can keep your assets tokenized and stable, even um, you know, a a w without losing the benefits of um, FDIC insurance in the U.S. up to a hundred thousand dollars in your bank account if anything goes wrong. So, right? I, I'm, there's like so many questions that pop into my mind. Like, what if a, a North Korean agent hacks? Uh, an individual who owns GUSD and all of a sudden gets into possession of US dollars mm -hmm. that are held within the Gemini exchange, but the private keys are managed by a North Korean agent. Yeah, that's an interesting. I mean, this is blockchain. You have to assume you have to assume an adversarial relationship. It is it is illegal for someone under sanctions uh, to be in possession of US dollars. Hmm. So, yeah, the regulatory... Yeah, but, I, but, it's a, but it's more to me about how yeah. they can use that dollar, right? So if a North Korean right. does get a GUSD, if he wants to redeem it for a real U.S. dollar that he can use in some way, then he has to go to a U.S. bank. <laughs> but if he has a GUSD and some online website supports and accepts GUSD, then it would just work like cash. But um, there would still be yeah. that paper trail 
and the business that is accepting a GUSD from a North Korean resident, I guess, might be subject to sanctions, right? Or, or, or whatever, right, right. Um, subject to, to some fines or, or duties. So um, it's not clear how that would be um, a problem, since I guess if you are going to, what they're doing is um, they're pegging it one-to-one -to, -one to the US dollar and they're having their deposit balance examined monthly by uh, a top accounting firm in, in the US to verify that one-to-one -one peg. So it'll be a con continuously audited stable coin. And if there is any yeah. issue, let's say, for example, Gemini is hacked and you know a billion new GUSD tokens are, are minted, well, now the independent auditing firm is going to count the number of GUSD tokens in circulation and compare that to the bank account. And we should know, since it's, they're saying they're going to do it monthly, we should know if it's off. Uh, and that, yeah. that company has a fiduciary duty to tell the truth. Um, if they pick a top four or a big four accounting firm, then, then it's, it's pretty much gold. Um, and uh, I just want to make a note that I did find uh, some research that states uh, from Alex Lebt, who is the founder of a website called StableUnit.org, um, and he cites that the current implementation gives Gemini the ability to freeze any account or make an, all tokens non-transferable. The custodian is able to completely change the implementation of the token every 48 hours. <laughs> but, but then again, it's not possible to have unstoppable US dollars. <laughs> yeah. See, so like there, there is a way in which like this is the this is the part that my mind just like is boggled. There's a way in which their uh, lawyers convinced regulators to finally let them do this, and they've been trying forever. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's so it, so we'll, I mean, it's it, there's no telling where it'll go from here, right? Yeah. 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 It's uh, uh it's good news, and it does provide some uh, further fire to the argument that. Um, the institutions are coming. I, I love the different types of stable coins too. Like I'm totally all on board with like Gemini doing a, a, a fiat backed stable coin or, or a totally programmatic or algorithmic ones or, you know, trust token, which is I think trying to stabilize their um, tokens by involving the community with mining and certain other, you know, economic incentives. So you have humans mm -hmm. involved in the process. You have, and in a decentralized way, you have computers that are just running algorithms and, and, and people involved in that process by taking out CDPs and other instruments to try and make money or make a return on their investment. And then you have like Gemini or Tether or others who are um, doing their, their fiat-backed stable coins. But the interesting thing is that many, if not all of them, are building on Ethereum. So I don't know of any... Uh, I think there are some announced projects for like EOS stable coins and so on, but... I think that the, it's, it's clear where the, the most advanced ones are and um, the ones that can serve the market are going to do well because this, this is a very important um, part of the ecosystem. Make or die being multi-collateral is a form of uh, abstraction away from being a pure Ethereum US dollar stablecoin. I mean, and if it stayed stable through this, this was like the perfect time to show um, that die worked because the the market cap is under fifty million still, so the risk is low, and it just went through the worst right. bear, bear cycle that it could imagine. Right, it was launched almost at the peak, right, and and it's now yeah. you know, and it's still stable. That's incredible. And there's there's guys. If like I read, uh, 
sorry, if I read the charts correctly, there were points in which uh, like it's max maximum um, like out of band uh, trading prices were like four percent off of like the actual U.S. dollar exchange rate. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, because there are there are fluctuations. You know, right. It's, right, it's right. not like a completely dollar denominated. It's uh, basically algorithmically traded, taking right. supply in and out of the market in order to basically balance out um, its U.S. dollar equivalent. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's a very fascinating subject matter in the way you're basically like if you're able to simulate a the value of another asset without holding all of that assets in return, um, it's not exactly fractional reserve <laughs> banking per se, but it is kind of a form of magic. Uh, totally. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think all of these topics, you know, are are just awesome and so deep. We could go into. I'm, I'm sure, you know, a single topic we can go into hours of discussion on. But uh, I think that's all we have for today. I mean, thanks, Lucian. This is always fun. Um, yeah. we'd, like, we'd like to thank our publishers of Bitcoin Podcast Network. Thanks to the audience for joining us on your weekly dose of Ether. We'll see you next time. Sounds good. See you next time. <laughs>